I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing David Marinus, America's leading sports historian and a two-time Pulitzer winner, about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, which came out August 9, 2022, and is now in the top five nonfiction books on the New York Times bestseller list. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on September 7, 2022. Enjoy. So, our special guest, David Marinus. As, as many of you know, David is a two-time Pulitzer winner, has spent his career uh, doing all kinds of good things at the Washington Post, but also he told me last night for the last 30 years, he's been doing book to book to book. Uh, from my perspective, as somebody who knows something about sports, he is the leading sports historian of our generation. Many of you have probably read his biography of Vince Lombardi, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for 20 weeks and was turned into a Broadway show. Also, his best-selling biography of Roberto Clemente, and today, the big three, the trilogy, he calls it, talking about Jim Thorpe. But he's also uh, a political biography. He's written wonderful books on Bill Clinton, first in his class, if you haven't read that, I recommend it, as well as a biography of Obama. So, uh, David, we're so glad you're here in Dallas and Old Parkland. Thank you, Talmadge. This is, you know, I've spoken at a lot of awesome places, but this sort of tops it. <laughs> quite, a, <laughs> quite a room <laughs> and gathering. Well, we're, we're so glad. And uh, everybody, hopefully, has your book. If you don't, D David's going to be around afterwards uh, if you haven't gotten your book signed yet. Uh, but anyway, let's go ahead and, and start talking about Jim Thorpe. I think uh, this is a man whose most famous deeds were over 100 years ago, so there's something to we got to learn today. David, in your preface, you say that when you set out to write the book, you're interested in the making of the man and the creation of the myth. So how did Jim Thorpe, the man, become Jim Thorpe, the myth? Well, he became mythic because of his incredible accomplishments. And generally speaking, in American history or just world history, when someone does something magnificent, there's a tendency even to exaggerate that um, or to build mythology around it, whether it's a politician, a general, or an athlete. Um, you know, whether it's George Washington tearing down the cherry tree, you know, or Paul Bunyan, or, you know, there's, there's myths arise around people who seem larger than life. And so, and in, particularly in Jim Thorpe's era, the myth makers were uh, sports writers, um, you know, of the golden age, who, who were not interested in, uh, you know, the pathology of sports or the corruption of sports, but in the glory of sports. And so, especially Grantland Rice, um, who was probably the premier sports writer of that era, um, champion Jim Thorpe, and in doing so, helped create the mythology of Jim Thorpe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to think about it. The sports writers were really the color commentators of their day. Well, there was no television, you know. Yes, absolutely. You had to paint the picture. Yes, exactly. So you say in your 
acknowledgments at the end that whenever you make the decision to write a book, you have to first become obsessed with the subject. So what was the tipping point when all of a sudden you became obsessed with Jim Thorpe and said, I got to write a book about this guy? The obsession is true. Um, my wife tells the story of us driving down the street and I was supposed to turn left onto a side street and instead I turned into a fire station. And she sort of slapped me around and said, David, what chapter are you on? You know, that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that's the obsession. Um, Jim Thorpe sort of grew in me. I, I you know, as, as you pointed out, I'd already written uh, the Lombardi book by then and was working on the, the uh, Clementi book when I was in Denver um, at a, uh, actually it was um, a book event for a book I wrote on Vietnam in the 60s called They Marched Into Sunlight. And it was at the Denver Press Club and a gentleman um, who was from the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin came up to me afterwards with a sheaf of paper and said, David, this is your next book, Jim Thorpe. And I politely said, I don't take suggestions from other people. I have to be obsessed with it. And I'm working on Clemente and I've got a lot of other things going. So I didn't realize it, but he had planted the seed. And, and, and uh, it was probably about five years ago um, after I'd written a book about Detroit, the town I was born in, um, that I started thinking about sort of what would fill out this, this trilogy of sports books about, about uh, athletes or sports figures who not only have a terrific personal story of accomplishment, but also that I can use to illuminate American history and sociology. And Thorpe just fit that. I mean, you know, with Lombardi, it was not just this fabulous football coach, uh, but also a way to explore leadership um, and competition and success in American life and what it takes and what it costs. With Clemente, it was not just a beautiful ball player, but also, you know, so many athletes are called heroes, but almost none really are. Clemente was, you know, the way he lived his life and the way he died trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. So with Thorpe, it was not just these unparalleled accomplishments in sports, but also my opportunity to write about the Native American experience and the obstacles that all uh, Native Americans faced um, through those, telling the story of Jim Thorpe's life. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, those who've seen the Burt Lancaster movie from the early 50s, which was really my first exposure to Jim Thorpe, but if you know anything about him, it's the story of Carlisle, the Carlisle Indian School yes. in Carlisle, Pennsylvania where he spent nine of his early years. And you say in the book that the, the leaders of the Carlisle School had one goal, and that was to educate young Native Americans and turn them into productive citizens. And their mantra was, kill the Indian, save the man. How did that work out? Well, it was the, the, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was the first of the government, the flagship government boarding school for Native Americans. And it was founded in 1879, which was only three years after the Battle of Little Bighorn. Uh, the first students were uh, young Lakota Sioux, uh, many of whose fathers had fought against Custer. And the, the, the founder of the school, Richard Henry Pratt, was a military officer who had sort of become a little bit disillusioned with the whole process of the Indian Wars of the mid-19th century and thought that, that Indians were, were um, noble and worth saving. 
So his intentions, like so many things in life, he had he had what he would consider to be good intentions. Um, the the first students who went there, those young Lakota Sioux, um, thought they were going there to show their bravery to their elders and to die in Carlisle. That's what they thought was going to happen to them. And many of them sadly did die um, while they were there of various diseases and, and other things. Um, but that kill the Indian, save the man was a notion that, that the only way for that race to survive was to rid them of their language, of their culture, of their religion, uh, uh, shear their, their locks and um, uh, dress them in the uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry turn them into white people, basically. Um, and they thought they were doing that to save the Indians. Um, it was dehumanizing, sometimes cruel, the way they treated them. Um, and uh, it had contradictory effects. Um, you know, many of them suffered. Many of the young students there figured out how to survive in that system, came out of it to become leaders, actually, of the American Indian movements um, and doctors and so on. But, but so it had these, these dual effects of good and bad in it. Um, but the notion of ridding the Indians of their Indianness um, basically did not succeed, thank goodness. And, you know, um, they figured, most of the Native Americans figured out how to survive in that system. And, you know, at that point, there were about fewer than 300,000 Native Americans left in this country. Um, and the most popular statue in America was called the End of the Trail, which showed a, a, an Indian slumped on horseback. And the notion was that manifest destiny had prevailed. Um, progress had rendered the Native Americans uh, obsolete. Their race was dying, would soon be dead. And it didn't happen. You know, there are now uh, several million Native Americans. You know, the numbers increased from that point. And so, and the Native American identity has been held onto and is now sort of being recaptured in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the, the schools um, were very controversial, have become very controversial. I mean, uh, the Pope went to Canada just a few weeks ago to apologize for the way the Catholic Indian boarding schools, the cruelty of those. Um, and that's, there's sort of a reassessment of it in the United States as well now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the uh, survivors and their uh, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren um, have all been affected by it in various ways for better and worse. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that Carlisle became a household name was through athletics. Yep. And in their heyday, when Jim Thorpe was the star, they were playing Notre Dame, they were playing Army, they were playing Syracuse. How did this little Indian school schedule these major opponents and be you know, headline news as far as their athletic teams were concerned? Well, first of all, they had really good athletes. Even before Jim Thorpe got there, um, he started playing in 1907, but as early as the turn of the century, the Carlisle School was was playing great. And part of it was um, the great athletes. Part of it was a brilliant coach, Pop Warner, um, who is a decidedly mixed figure in my book, which we'll get to, but, but he was a brilliant football coach. Very innovative. Um, he de- he helped develop the forward pass, which only came in, was only legalized, you know, in the first years of the 20th century. Um, he developed the single wing and double wing offense. 
and he was, uh, he loved trick plays too. And I, I just sort of love this idea that in that era, you could do all kinds of crazy things. One year he designed a, a uniform with a kangaroo pocket in it, and they'd hide the football in there, you know? <laughs> another, another play, they were playing the University of Chicago against Amos Alonzo Stagg, the other sort of giant figure of, of uh, football in that era. And he had a play where he lined up one of his ends right on the, right on the sideline, and the guy would go around the opposition bench and come out on the other side to catch a forward catch. <laughs> if only you could do that today, right? So anyway, Warner was a, was a great, uh, great tactician and, and coach um, with several flaws that we'll get to. But um, the, the, in that era, it wasn't uh, Texas and Oklahoma and Alabama and LSU and, that were the great football teams. But Army and Yale and Harvard and Penn and Princeton and West Point and Syracuse. And uh, Carlisle was a team that was always on the road. They didn't play at home because they were a gate attraction. And so here you had this sort of paradox of a team that was drawing these uh, large crowds because of their exotic nature. Um, you know, the, the Indians are playing um, for a school that wanted to rid them of their Indianness. You know, that's sort of the paradox. But um, they, they drew huge crowds at, at all of those schools and helped, um, that helped develop the football program there as well um, and made them a, a national uh, figure. And so if they play any of those schools, the, all of the, the myth makers from New York, the sports writers, would come and cover their game. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the key games that you spend a good deal of time on in the book, properly so, took place on November 9, yep. 1912. Carlisle, led by Jim Thorpe, their hero, played Army at West Point. Now, what made that game such a cause for high drama? Well, think about it. It was the Indians against the Army, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, and on a level playing field, finally. And uh, all of, the, all of the, the, the players on the Carlisle Indian team knew that significance. Pop Warner, who was sort of a fiery orator, made sure that they knew even more about it. You know, they're, they're, they're playing the long swords. And uh, so um, it became, it trans transcended football in that sense. I mean, most football games, the players are just thinking about their, their, what they have to do that day and maybe a girlfriend in the stands, you know, but... But in that case, there was something larger at stake. And um, so, yeah, the, the uh, Carlisle team had Jim Thorpe at left halfback. Um, two future All-Americans, Joe Guy and Pete Gallick, were just starting on that team. They were playing in the line. Uh, just a really great team. And uh, the West Point team had a, a linebacker and running back named Dwight David Eisenhower. And on the bench was Omar Bradley. Um, and Eisenhower confessed later to his brothers that he and one of his teammates named Hobbs had strategized before the game on how they were going to knock Jim Thorpe out, get him out of the game. Um, and they, there was a collision where they hit him high and low, and he was on the ground for a while, then he got up and kept playing and knocked Eisenhower out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> And Eisenhower would later say, you know, I, 
I tackled Jim Thorpe once, meaning once in the whole game. Um, but the, the uh, Carlisle Indians won 27 to 6. Uh, they just thrashed Army. And it was, it was a, what I call the greatest act of, of athletic retribution in American history. <laughs> Well, 1912, that year of that game, uh, before that game, was the Olympics yeah. in Stockholm, Sweden. And at that Olympic Games, uh, Thorpe did something nobody else has ever done. He won the decathlon and the pentathlon. Yes. And supposedly, the king of Sweden, when the medals were being presented or afterwards, said, you are the most wonderful athlete in the world. Is that story true? Well, it's hard to say because there's no direct uh, video of that, uh, film of it. Um, and uh, um, the, the newspapers the next day, I studied 30 newspapers in the U.S. and Britain and Sweden, and none of them have that direct quote. Um, but it, likely he said something of that nature. The part that's mythological is that Thorpe then responded, thanks, King. Um, <laughs> Which is funny, but it also was condescending. It was like he didn't know any better to how to address a king. He, he said thank you um, if he said anything. Um, but he was the greatest athlete in the world. Um, and that was undoubted. And, and so many of the stories called him the greatest athlete in the world. They didn't attribute it to the king of Sweden. Um, but, I mean, think about it. In two weeks, he competed in 15 events, plus two extra events, the long jump and the high jump. Um, and at one point um, during the decathlon, this is another sort of myth, the myth that his shoes were stolen. I think he just misplaced them and couldn't find them. Um, but for a couple of events, he competed in mismatched shoes. One shoe was bigger than the other. He had to wear heavy socks on one shoe so that they would fit right, and he still won the event. Um, you know, he was, he, he was dominant. One of the... Uh, you know, I love the fact that so many noted figures run through Jim Thorpe's life. So he played football against Dwight Eisenhower on the Olympic team with uh, Thorpe. One was Avery Brundage, who was, uh, you know, I think of as sort of this older plutocrat who ran the International Olympic Committee and smoked cigars and stayed in fancy hotels. He was a decathlete himself. Um, he competed against Jim Thorpe. He went to the University of Illinois and was... And, and was put on the team after the tryouts in Chicago. Um, he was a very mediocre decathlete, and so much so that later he would champion the cause of pure amateurism and the competition is what counted and not the national stakes of it or whether you won or lost. But uh, Brundage in those Olympics was so humiliated he quit after eight events um, because Thorpe was thrashing him. Also on that team was George S. Patton, you know, another, another famous general. Patton competed in the, uh, what was called the modern pentathlon, which was a different event from the normal pentathlon because it was military, basically military uh, events, uh, target shooting, equestrian, fencing, and so on. Um, and uh, Patton was also a very interesting character there, but mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that. Now, obviously, uh long before there was television or very good movie cameras, we have to rely on the sports writers of the day. But David, I thought you captured, as we try to visualize, what, what would it have looked like to see Jim Thorpe on the playing field in action? And here's David's description. 
He ran with the fluid speed and force of a racehorse. He jumped as if his feet had springs. He performed the five track and field events of the pentathlon and the 10 of the decathlon better than anyone alive, to say nothing of what he could do with a ball, carrying it, punting it, kicking it, passing it, hitting it, catching it. So David, as you visualize that, is there any film footage available today that would allow somebody to, to see this incredible athlete as he was? Very, very little. That was, that was one of the, the disappointments of my uh, research of finding him. I was able um, to find um, an incredible documentary of those 1912 Olympics, which was um, done by a modern documentarian named Adrian Wood, who was commissioned by the IOC to, to take all of the old newsreels from, uh, from that era and modernize them and put it together into a two-hour documentary. There is footage of Thorpe receiving his awards from the King of Sweden, and there's one of him uh, broad jumping, but not much else that I could find of, of, of his football career. A couple of grainy shots, um, but nothing that really evoked the full, the full skill of him. So I, I had to rely on uh, first-person accounts from that era of probably 30 people who had played with him or against him describing all of that. And one of those accounts came from the most unlikely source. When, when Jim was at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, one of his teachers was a young woman named Mary Ann Moore um, who lived in Carlisle. And she went on to become one of the great poets of American letters. Um, but her first job was teaching at the Carlisle School. And she described going down to the playing fields and watching Jim Thorpe in action. Mm -hmm. Now, a year after those 1912 Olympics, the sad part of the story, the Olympic Committee stripped him of his medals and his records. So to educate everybody here, some know, some don't. What was the basis for them taking away the medals and the records, and why was it unfair? Uh, the basis was that he had played Bush League baseball in the Eastern Carolina League, um, the lowest of the low minors, in 1909 and 1910, um, while he was at Carlisle. Um, and uh, he, that league, the Eastern Carolina League, was full of college athletes who were playing under aliases. Um, so many so that people called it the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. <laughs> it, was, it was completely common in that era for college athletes to play summer baseball for a little bit of pay, two bucks a game or $30 a month. Um, Dwight Eisenhower played under the name Wilson in the Kansas State League. Um, so that was commonplace. Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. Um, but in 1913, right after that brilliant football season, which followed the Olympics, um, a reporter in Worcester, Massachusetts, for the Worcester Telegram, got a tip that there was a guy in town who had been a manager in the Eastern Carolina League and had managed Jim Thorpe, and thought, well, that's a big story. Uh, you know, he, he's supposed to be an amateur. Even though it had been in the... Carolina press for those two years because he played under the name Jim Thorpe. His name was in the box scores. The, the newspapers from Charlotte to Raleigh to all the small towns 
uh, Rocky Mount in Fayetteville where Jim had played. They had all covered it and knew about it, but it, it, it didn't break on the East Coast, the Northeast, until 1913 when this story appeared. And um, immediately uh, it got to James E. Sullivan, who was the head of the Amateur Athletic Union and the American Olympic Committee, um, and to Pop Warner and the people at Carlisle. And there's so many elements to this. The first is the hypocrisy. Um, Pop Warner knew what Jim had been doing. He had, he had been sending uh, Carlisle Indian athletes to play baseball for years. Um, one of his best associates up in Pennsylvania was the scout who sent them to Rocky Mount. Um, he had met with Thorpe several times during that period. And, and so there's no doubt that, that, that Warner knew what Jim was doing. And yet he feigned innocence to protect his own reputation. James E. Sullivan was on the board of the athletic advisory, uh, the Carlisle Athletic Association. He too knew, and he too pretended he didn't know. Um, the superintendent at Carlisle, Moses Friedman, had been writing letters to Thorpe saying, I don't want you to play summer baseball. He knew and lied about it. So that's one aspect of it, the hypocrisy of the people in power to save their own reputations. Um, Another aspect of it, as I said, is that so many athletes were doing it, but, but only Jim Thorpe was doing it under his own name. Um, and then you have to consider other aspects of what does it mean to be an amateur. George Patton um, was training, being paid by the U.S. Army to train for precisely the events that he competed in. Is that an amateur or a pro? Uh, Thorpe played baseball, which had nothing to do with the events he was competing in. Um, the entire Swedish team was given leave of absence from their jobs for six months before the Olympics started so that they could perfect their, their events. And they're, they're getting full pay during that period. Are they pros or amateurs? Um, there were so many college athletes who were getting paid by their football coaches in that era, including, as it would turn out, Carlisle um, by Pop Warner. Um, a congressional investigation a few years later showed that he had a slush fund that he was paying his players with. You know, so there's so many different aspects of it that, that appear either contradictory or hypocritical, and Thorpe was singled out to take the fall for everybody in that somewhat um, corrupt system. Mm -hmm. So when, when all that came down, obviously, here's Jim Thorpe, the world's greatest athlete. It's time to play pro football and Major League Baseball. Right. But let's start with the pro football. His first game, 1915, Canton Bulldogs. Paint a picture for us of what pro football was like in 19, what equipment were they wearing? What were the crowds like? Uh, what, what would it have been like to go to a pro football game in 1915? You know, when you think about uh, Jerry Jones and, and the billions of, that go into football today, you know, $240 million to, uh, a quarterback. Quarterback. Um, From so Dallas. In that era, uh, pro football was at the bottom rung of, of American sports. It was way below Major League Baseball, below college football, below boxing, below tennis and golf and horse racing. Uh, it, was a, it was a ragtag thing. Uh, when Thorpe joined the Canton Bulldogs in 1915, it was in the Ohio League. 
which was barely a league. There were virtually no rules, and the, the teams were changing. And, and Newt Rockney, the famed Newt Rockney, one year played on six different teams in the same year because they pay him more. Um, that was the way it was in 1915 um, when Thorpe joined it. And football historians say that Jim Thorpe joining that league is what started the rise of professional football, that he was the key figure in the rise. Um, he, uh, he played, you know, he was already um, in his late 20s when that started, and he played through uh, his late 30s. Um, he, was the, he was dominant in the early years, but another thing you have to remember is that football in that era was, was a 60-minute game for the players. They didn't come out. They played offense and defense. Um, Thorpe not only was a left halfback, which is a position where you take the most difficult hits, um, but also was a, a defensive back slash linebacker. So every play was a collision for him. And you think about him playing for all of those years without stop. He also, you know, sort of continuing that notion of him as the all-around athlete, he was a fabulous punter, um, routinely punting the ball 70 to 80 yards. You know, one time he said, I'm only punting at 60 yards, I'm over the hill, you know. Um, <laughs> and he was a great field goal kicker and a drop kicker. The ball was more like a rugby ball in that era. It wasn't as... as narrow and sharp as it became. And so you could drop kick the ball for a field goal as well, and he was great at that. So he could literally do everything on a football field and never came out in that era. But, but pro football itself was, was only starting its rise. It was very disorganized. And finally, in 1920, um, they reorganized into what be, was known as the American Pro Football Association, which a year later became the National Football League. Um, and in that first year, um, George Hallis came with the Decatur Staley's. A group of owners met in, in the, the uh, showroom of the Hupmobile Automobile uh, in Canton and sort of organized this new league. And they named Jim Thorpe their first president. Now, it was, a, it was, it was just uh, for show. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he w wasn't the administrator, but they knew that his name was the one that would help make the league. Mm -hmm. And he's in the Hall of Fame, so... The first, uh, first wave in 1963, Jim Thorpe was the first and biggest name in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And there's a big statue of him when you walk in. <laughs> now, he also, besides being this stalwart pro football player, he also played Major League Baseball. He played baseball first. Um, right there was more money in it, I suppose. Right, well, it, yes, and it was more of a big sport. Um, so... Right after uh, he lost his medals in 1913, he and Pop Warner had sort of this codependence. They, they needed each other, even, even though Warner sort of protected his own reputation and didn't acknowledge that he knew what Jim was doing. But Warner became his agent and got him, you know, many pro baseball teams were looking for him. Jim had played at Carlisle in the spring. He was both a dominant track and field guy and playing baseball, um, you know, on, on the off days. Um, so immediately after the, uh, he lost his medals, uh, he signed with the New York Giants uh, under John McGraw um, and played baseball, professional baseball, for many years thereafter. 
um, which was a mixed experience. Um, one of the reasons that McGraw signed him was that McGraw knew that at the end of that 1913 season, the New York Giants and the Chicago White Sox were going to travel around the world to spread baseball to the rest of the world. So they went to Japan and China and Philippines and Australia and Egypt and then, and then Europe. Um, and even though McGraw was incredibly well-known in the United States, as was Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, and there were Hall of Famers on the trip, including Tris Speaker and Sam Crawford and, and a lot of really well-known American baseball players. The rest of the world didn't know any of them. They knew one person on that trip, Jim Thorpe. Wherever they went, people turned out to see Jim Thorpe. Uh, when they got to Rome, the, all of the, uh, the people at the Vatican, you know, they didn't care about anybody else. They wanted to shake hands with Jim Thorpe. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the reasons that McGraw signed him. Um, was for that publicity reason. Although he figured that Thorpe was such a great athlete that he could become a good baseball player. So the irony is that McGraw mishandled Thorpe. He never really gave him the chance to play. Um, he would he signed him and then he'd sit on the bench all year. Um, and, you know, it was true that he had trouble with the curveball at first. Um, he was better than, than Michael Jordan from the start. Uh, and... Uh, um, and it, when you analyze his baseball career, um, the more he played, the better he was. So by 1919, he was playing for the Boston Braves, and he led the league in hitting almost the entire year. Um, he was up there with Ty Cobb, and, and uh, you know, Babe Ruth was playing for the Red Sox across town when, mm -hmm. when Thorpe was the star for the Braves. Um, so there's... A, you know, there's a sense that, that baseball historians, and I agree with, that, that McGraw m mishandled him and Thorpe could have become a very, very good baseball player and showed that potential um, if he got a chance to play more. Mm -hmm. Well, when his playing days finally ended, you know, here's the world's greatest athlete. Why didn't he become a coach? What, what kind of coaching opportunities were there for the world's greatest athlete? He wanted to be a coach, and he got one opportunity. Um, actually, it was in 1915 um, when he was hired to be an assistant football coach for Indiana University um, for one year, and then that head coach was fired, and Thorpe lost that opportunity. And for the rest of his, really for the rest of his life, he was trying to get another shot at it. He was a player coach in, in the pros, uh, but he wanted the stability of a college coaching career. And, you know, I would say it was a combination of um, being unfairly judged and his own difficulties. You know, he did, have, he did struggle with alcohol his entire adult life, um, and um, that created problems for him as well, and that could have been definitely a factor in some of the troubles that he encountered. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, everybody in this room, over the course of our lives, we've matured and our consciousness about what the plight of Native Americans was and all that was suffered. Uh, and that's uh, obviously a huge theme of this book. But other than the taking away of his Olympic medals and records, what's the most unfair thing that happened to Jim Thorpe because he was a Native American? 
Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with what happened to all Native Americans. See, the year he was born, 1887, was the year that the Dawes Act was passed, which essentially was an effort to break up the communal uh, society of Native Americans and turn them into uh, private landholders. Again, it was with what were thought to be noble intentions, but it was destroying their culture at the same time. And, and they were, you know, it was also condescending in that they were, the Indians were either classified as wild or, or not wild. And if they were considered wild, then they had to prove themselves uh, over a 25-year period before they would get full royalties to that land. So that literally millions of acres were taken away from, from Indian territories um, in that process. That's what Jim Thorpe faced from the beginning. He, he grew up on the Sac and Fox uh, reservation in Indian territory of what became Oklahoma. Um, he was um, a descendant of Black Hawk, the great Sac and Fox warrior. His mother always told him that he was the reincarnation of Black Hawk. Um, Jim Thorpe loved hunting and fishing really more than football or baseball. Um, so that was the start. Then you, you faced what, what happened at Carlisle, and you see this, this trend throughout the course of his life, um, all the way to the year he died, 1953, when, when Congress passed another act to, of detribalization to an attempt to totally eliminate um, the communal reservation property of, of Native Americans, which um, was only temporary. It didn't succeed. Um, but... Um, he faced uh, sort of the most obvious superficial forms of, of racism in that, like almost every uh, Indian athlete, he was called chief. You know, they weren't chiefs. He wasn't a chief. Um, but that's the way white society viewed any Indian athlete. Um, when they played, um, they were always on the warpath and scalping people, you know, in the sports uh, sections. Um, and dealing with fire water. I mean, all of those sort of stereotypes of Native Americans were applied to, to Jim as they were to all of his, his teammates and, and colleagues. So, that, I mean, that was just American society in that period that he, he dealt with from the beginning. When he, he, went, he ended up in, in Los Angeles, um, and for about a decade and a half, he was on the fringes of the movie industry. He, he was a, an extra or acted in over 70 movies. You know, he was directed by John Ford and, and was in movies with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, among, you know, among almost every other famous actor of, of that era. And that's a period where Thorpe, for all of his troubles, really sort of reasserted his identity as a Native American. And he became the spokesperson. There are about 200 or 300 Indians in the Southern California area, area who wanted to get those roles in Westerns of Indians. And instead, the, the studios were often hiring white people, putting them grease paint on them to make them Indians. So Thorpe said, you know, hire us. Uh, he became the spokesperson for that. And also to try to eliminate some of the, the negative um, stereotypes of the way Indians were portrayed in those movies. And trying to put a wrap on the ultimate significance of Jim Thorpe. Obviously, there's the, there's a sports side, but you say at the beginning of your book that his story is important because he, quote, persevered against all odds and he survived. So 
explain that perseverance and the uh, heroic nature of his survival? I'm not going to call it heroic, Talmadge, um, but it was, uh, it was uh, in the end, uh, you know, I, for the last 30 years of his life, as I was researching and writing the book, I kept saying, come on, something good's got to happen to this guy, you know? And in a sense, it doesn't. Um, but he just kept going, you know, no matter whether, whatever obstacle was in his way, whether it was his own creation or societies, he kept moving, he kept trying to, he kept, you know, he had jobs ranging from that in Hollywood to, to um, you know, being a greeter at taverns to working for the Chicago Youth Athletic Association to, uh, um, you know, he just kept trying and, and moving from town to town, trying to get a, more stability. Um, and he never gave up, you know, there was a little bit of, I mean, it's heartbreaking to read some of the letters he wrote during that period where he kept thinking, this is it, this is my chance, and it doesn't happen. Um, but he did make it through. He had seven children. Um, they didn't see that much of him when, he was, when they were young, but they all um, turned into successful people. I mean, he had uh, four sons, and three of them were, uh, rose in the military to become officers. Um, his three daughters all got college degrees and graduate degrees. Now his, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it's a very successful family, mm. you know, and it's partly because Jim Thorpe kept going, mm. you know. So that, that, that's the perseverance that I think I found admirable in the end um, and that sort of, to me, became emblematic of the entire Native American race. Mm -hmm. And David's book right now is number four as of last Sunday on the New York Times bestseller. Next list. Sunday. It's still number two. Oh, it's still number <laughs> Sorry. All right. But anyway, and, and a lot of good things have happened. He was on the cover of the New York Times book review. Uh, but just in the last month or so, uh, Jim Thorpe's Olympic yeah. uh, re records have been restored. So... Talk about the effort over time from 1913 till finally over 100 years later to try to right these wrongs and, and restore, you know, what, what he had won at the 1912 Olympics. Boy, it's been ever since then, actually. I mean, right after he lost the medals, you know, many of the same sports writers who were writing about him in what you would consider to be condescending uh, language were nonetheless his champions. Uh, Grant Lenoir championed Jim Thorpe throughout his life, and as did most sports writers. It was only the the Olympic officials that were against giving him back his medals. The public was on his side, the sporting press was on his side, and yet it wasn't happening. For many of those decades, it was because of Avery Brundage, who just refused to to accept the the you know the notion that Jim was unjustly treated. Um, so uh, starting in the 1930s, there was an effort to, to get his medals back. Um, in 1951, when the movie starring Burt Lancaster came out, there was another push to get them back. Finally, in 1983, on the eve of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, uh, the IOC had sort of come to grips with what they'd done. 
And Juan Antonio Samaranch, the president of the International Olympic Committee, went to Los Angeles, met with uh, Jim's seven children, and gave them replica medals, but still did not acknowledge him as the sole winner of those events. Even though from the very beginning, when the IOC gave the gold medals to the second place winners from, who were from Sweden and Norway, those two athletes said, we don't want anything to do with this. Jim Thorpe was the winner. Um, so, but anyway, so 1984, they finally gave the replica medals, but still kept those second place finishers as the co-gold medalists. So it was sort of a half-hearted uh, response. And then finally, last in July of this year, um, after a long lobbying effort, which now included um, Anita de France, who was a key official from the United States on the uh, IOC, they finally restored him as the sole winner of those gold medals, and all the records are back in the books. I mean, even when I was researching this book, if you look at the official 1912 records, you don't see the name Jim Thorpe. He was completely erased from it. Now he's back. Um, I had nothing to do with it, but it was pretty good timing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do a little Q&A from the audience. Anybody have a question for David about what you've heard? Yeah. Well, he started as a pitcher, um, but his arm, he had a sore arm, and he ended up playing outfield and first base. Um, and he was... His skills were, um, he could hit the ball a country mile when he hit it, um, and he was, a, he was a great base stealer um, and a, an inconsistent fielder. But uh, the, the thing about Thorpe as a baseball player was you could look at his stats and say, well, he's kind of average, but he was never average. He was either really great or, or not good, you know, and it came out to be average. But there were games... You know, one part of the mythology is uh, Thorpe himself said, you know, I once hit uh, home runs into three separate states. He was playing in Texarkana. He said, I hit them into <laughs> Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, which is a great story, but it's geographically impossible. <laughs> but he did hit three home runs that day. I mean, it's in the, it's documented. So, you know, he, he, had, he, had, he had great power and speed, but he was inconsistent. Anybody else? Yes, Ken. Yes. Yeah, it's a guy named Jim Kosakowski, <laughs> who lives in Elgin, Illinois, who's a great grandson. And Jim and his brother Anton didn't play football or baseball, but they were great wrestlers um, uh, at Northern Illinois University. And Jim, who's the, the grandson of one of Thorpe's daughters, um, sort of carries the flame for the family in a lot of ways. Um, but there were, yeah, there, there were several that, that were important, but I would say he was the one that sort of fits what you're asking about. Yeah, Robin. You know, say it again. What was his size and weight? Um, it's stunning to me when he got to Carlisle at age 16 um, in 1904, he stood five foot five and weighed 116 pounds. 
So he had an enormous growth spurt after that. Um, but uh, it varied from, from, at Carlisle, he generally weighed about 182 to 187 and was six feet tall. You know, in the pros, he thickened and, and, uh, and his height weighed about 202 pounds. Um, but even, even when, he, when he got thicker, he was still incredibly fast. He, was, he always had that speed. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book, what, what was the magic moment when Jim Thorpe, the athlete, was discovered? So tell oh, that story at Carlisle. Sure. Well, for the first three years at Carlisle, Jim's, Jim wasn't in athletics. He wasn't even at the school. The school had this, this other part of its policy was to uh, sort of farm out their students to local farms in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland area almost as indentured servants, actually. Um, and Jim went through that for a few years. And then in 1907, he was back at the school. And the story, which is true, is, uh, although it's exaggerated to some degrees um, in certain accounts, he was working on the farm at the school in his overalls, walked by the track, saw the high jumpers trying to clear the bar at about six feet and failing. And Thorpe, in his overalls, easily cleared it. And, and, and the next day, he was called into Pop Warner's office and said, you know, you're on the track team. <laughs> and that really started it all. And, you know, within a year, he was not only the track star, but also the left halfback, and, and it all rose from there. I love that picture. Yeah. This guy out of nowhere in overalls can jump over something that nobody else can jump. Right. Okay. Any other questions? Well, David, oh, one more. Here's over here. A couple more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which, the, which the, track record stood the longest? Stood the longest. Um, the difficulty in answering that is that the decathlon scoring system has changed so many times that you can't say, yeah. Um, but um, what you can say and what Olympic historians say is that Thorpe dominated, his scores dominated in a way that no one has since. They were that much better than everyone else's of that time. But again, uh, everything was different. I mean, like, Think about Jim Thorpe at 185 pounds trying to pole vault with a, with a vault pole that could break, right? <laughs> I mean, whereas today you can, you know, they're so unbreakable and it's a completely different sport, essentially. So a lot of that goes into it too. But, but for his era, um, against his fellow competitors, he was, he, his records, um, the, the, the difference between him and the rest of the group was greater than anyone else's. Mm -hmm. Bob, did you have another question? Uh, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
well, teammate. Yeah. I wish I had. I, I, I read his uh, stories, you know, in Fathers Playing Catch with Sons. And, uh, I mean, Doc, Hall, uh, Doc Ellis, for those of you who don't know, pitched a no-hitter on LSD. I mean, <laughs> among other things. Um, uh, he, he was uh, a lively uh, character, to put it mildly. Um, Clementi was... Uh, sort of the, the uh, father figure of that team. You know, all of the other players loved Clemente and looked up to him, including Doc, um, who was very different from Clemente. Um, and, but Donald Hall, uh, you know, the, you're making some fascinating connections because Mar- Marianne Moore went from Christy Mathewson all the way to Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese. She, she wrote a poem about those Dodgers of the 1950s, but she loved baseball. Okay, well, we're so appreciative of y'all coming and to our sponsors once again and to David for coming to town and honoring his presence. So if you haven't gotten a book, there's still some. If some came in late, get David to sign it, but have a great day. Oh, and and be very nice to your sponsors. I'll go ahead and announce this now. (laughs) And the reason is because on September 27th, 20 days from today, we're going to have Peter Baker... White House correspondent for the New York Times, and his wife, Susan Glasser, the uh, staff writer for the New Yorker, talk about their book, which comes out on September 20th, about the Trump presidency, and the title of the book is The Divider. And it's great. You don't want to miss it. Uh, And it'll be in this room where it happens, the pecan room. All right. Thank you, David. After reading David Marinus' magnificent new biography of Jim Thorpe, It gave me new appreciation, not only for his incredible athletic achievements, but also for his rising above the challenges of being a Native American in the early and mid-20th century and persevering through so many trials. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.